0: Hello and welcome to episode 155 of the Waters Waveland Podcast. I am Anthony Malakian and I am joined by James Rundle. Hello. So today we're going to talk a little bit about recent developments with the Consolidated Audit Trail. James and I put out a about 6,000 word or almost, almost 6,000 word feature on just how much of a complete cluster f- this has been. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, we will talk a little bit about that and try and look a little bit ahead of what's to come for that. But we also have a guest uh, for today. Uh, James spoke with Martin Boyd, who is the global head of institutional wholesale business uh, for FIS's um, institutional wholesale business, which I believe, James, is their uh, legacy SunGuard uh, Correct. business, yeah, yes? It's
1: the old uh, SunGuard Capital Markets business.
0: And what did you guys talk about? Just to give a little preview.
1: Uh, a pretty wide-ranging conversation. So the, the main focus was on fintech. I guess. Um, so looking back at when it was white hot over the, well, I guess over the last sort of five years or so, and sort of seeing if the market's tapered off a bit now. Um, looking more specifically at areas such as reg tech and compliance tech, and you know, just seeing do they have anywhere ready to go now? Um, is the field so saturated with startups that there's not much left to attack? Um, how are valuations doing? How's investment doing? Um, I'm personally of the opinion that it is starting to taper off a little bit, and um, I guess some of the disruptive relationships are becoming institutionalized. Uh, Martin seemed to think that was a, a long way to go. And then we talk a bit more about sort of capital markets-focused stuff, um, primarily around as people move from a period of heavy regulatory compliance and into looking ahead to the future, um, what trading desks on the buy side and the sell side need to be looking at in terms of cost reductions, how to sort of streamline their systems and everything else.
0: Okay. So, yeah, it'll be uh, wide-ranging and... Uh, good informative stuff. Uh, well, I get to listen to it a little bit as I edit this and put it all together. But uh, mm-hmm. so I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet. But I'll trust that you did a decent enough job, and I'm sure Martin did fine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about the cat the consolidated audit trail. Uh, on Wednesday, so it's be published on. Uh, so we're recording on a Thursday. Uh, this will go live on Friday, uh, but on Wednesday at about 4 o'clock toward the end of the day, yep. there was a webinar uh, put out by the Reg NMS plan, yes? Yes, the there, Cat NMS. Um, or
1: Cat NMS, operating sorry, creative, not Reg NMS. Um, the yeah. guys who kind of, you know, the body of uh, self-regulatory organizations, so the Stock Exchanges, FINRA, um, yeah. anyone else is involved with it who kind of put these webcasts together for technical matters, but this is obviously very highly anticipated considering that... Um, they parted ways with Thesis Cat at the end of January, mm-hmm. um, which prompted us to write that Leviathan of a story, um, which you can read on watertechnology.com if you have half an hour free, I okay. guess. Um, yeah, what a sorry saga, I guess, like looking back at what's happened to it. Um, we'll get to what happened in the podcast in a minute, but I mean, throughout the course of reporting this story, it was sort of uniformly... Just related to how badly it's been mismanaged by yeah. everyone involved. I mean yeah, I mean I think
0: yeah. that's the key takeaway, right? Is that there's no one's got clean hands in this yeah. in this ordeal here, that this is you know, it's FINRA is certainly to blame. Uh s E C is certainly at blame. What I don't think FINRA is to blame. Oh, I'm, so, I'm, sorry. Yeah. See, I'm I'm just throwing Finra under the bus. I'll assume it <laughs> will be certainly to blame later on. They're not on. They're not on the blame list the, yet. The, the SROs the are, SROs, yeah. and of which Finra is an SRO um, yep. that was involved in the in the voting process. Um, well, it recused itself from the decision recused process. itself from the decision but then going forward yeah. right that they were still involved it's still been uh, part of
1: the MSP yeah. so it does have yeah. a share of the blame yeah. to do um,
0: um, and then uh, Thesis certainly uh, has its fair share of blame as well so it's it's really a community of blame that can go around I think
1: yeah I mean yeah particularly the SRAs I guess for how they've kind of dragged their heels on it and all the delays and the way they kind of didn't give the project any structure until they're pretty much told to by the SEC and then they appointed a bunch of guys from Nasdaq and uh, and girls sorry from Nasdaq um, and Finer and various other firms uh, through to actually putting their work groups back together and putting some structure on it thesis I think likes to play the this is a David versus Goliath story but you know they probably bit off a bit more than they could chew yeah you know, we've heard reliably they came in in um, under everyone else and they're bidding
0: for it in the first place. Significantly and, significantly,
1: under. And, you know, there's there's winning contracts by coming in cheap, but then there's also, like, but that uh, And so, out.
0: fine, they came in cheap. Mm-hmm. All right. But that is one thing that did kind of, that struck me as we were kind of going about this. These SROs knew what the top line, so every, they, they knew, even though this isn't etern- uh, externally available numbers, we yeah. did hear certain metrics um, that were thrown around uh, from other bidders and stuff like that. But, so they knew what the high end was of, here are these uh, bidders saying that this it's going to cost this much. Yeah. And thesis is coming in here at 10, 12 times underneath. Well, yeah. I
1: mean, to put it in perspective, like, some of the high ends of the bids were in the hundreds of millions of dollars to do it yeah. over five years, which was contracts. And thesis was in the tens of millions of dollars, I think. Yeah. Um, and in fact, we found a federal rule filing that said you know, in the first year it was going to cost $30 million or something yeah. like that. Um, which is just too much. And, yeah, you're right, Thesis definitely has a bit of blame to shoulder fed, But also, I think we put a line in there saying, you know, if the SROs were concerned by this, it certainly didn't show you because they gave them the contract anyway, yeah. knowing that this wasn't going to be enough. Like, you know, yes, yeah. And like more for them, really, and also more for the SEC as well. Like, you know, we didn't talk a lot about the SEC in that story outside of kind of its action over the yeah. last few months, but they've got a, a lot of blame for this as well. Like, I know that the SEC's perspective is that this is an NMS thing, We're not involved. We just want the data, be able to interrogate it. It's up to you guys to put it together. But I'm sorry, it is a regulatory project. You wrote a rule around this. You guys know that this has been a complete basket case for years and years and years now. And you've just so reluctantly engaged with it that... (laughs) I mean, if you give people an inch, they're going to take a mile, of right? Course. And especially the exchanges, and especially people within the capital markets industry. I mean, how long
0: have the? It's, this is, this yeah. is. There's nothing that's surprising about that in in so many different ways, yeah. right? That that they wanted truly no part of this, and even now, they're obviously taking it more seriously. Mm. But they also don't want this. They know that this is the poison chalice, right? Mm. That they don't want to have to be the ones that are going to lead these cats. You know, that they're going to try and keep on, you know, cracking the whip here and there. Yeah. But they also don't want to have to be fully engaged, fully involved, that they basically have to overtake this whole project. Oh, they want sorry. no part uh, of that. At some
1: point, you're a regulator. You have to. Yeah. If they can't do it themselves, and they've been out of compliance for a year and a half of this yeah day, by brazenly ignoring the deadlines, quite frankly, yeah. um, why have you not put a action on them? Yeah. Why, and if you don't want to be involved, fine. You don't want to operate it. I understand that. You're not a technology company. You're a regulator. Yeah. But it is your responsibility to ensure that your rules that you put down are followed. And yeah. you can't just... I mean, universally, people we spoke to on both sides were just like, yeah, that was like one of the most bizarre things I've ever seen. When they didn't yeah. just didn't report in November 2017, the SEC did nothing about it. Yeah. It, sort of, it doesn't inspire confidence in the ability of the market cop to actually police as a beat. You know what I mean? And because um, of
0: this, if there is another... Because there have been other mini flash crashes and stuff like that. Yeah. But let's say that there is another uh, May 2010 you know, mm-hmm. moment, uh, whatever day it was, I can't remember. Uh, where it drops thousand points and just in a matter of you know minutes, and then just a rebound almost instantly, and they still can't solve this. Well, you were derelict in your duty then yeah. of getting this thing going. I know that you can. They can say like, well, now we have the cop on bar- the the was it the czar the the cat czar person Venetia yeah, and, and, and Kimmel, who was hiding. That was I, we should say that. So we talked with a lot of people is the one that really kind of came away of everybody was like no she's really good like this this was a good like I was surprised that no one had anything you know negative or even just questioning they're like no that was a great hire that was a smart move not that she was hired by SC it was a great uh Promotion or whatever, I guess that whatever you would call that. I mean, it would have
1: been nice to pick her brains personally, but of course, the SEC didn't make SEC, it available for yes, instance. Yes, of course. So yes, <laughs> it's got to be the easiest press job in the world, right? You yeah, just, just copy no. and pasting, no comment, 50 times <laughs> no a day. Yes, you know, so if this all messes up, at least we can go there and do yeah. that,
0: right? Because the reason why I think that this is going to be such an important thing, though, too, is this is my speculation. I think you agree, but we can discuss this a little bit. So, this is you know, there's stuff that we write in the article, but then so this is me just now just formulating my own opinions Mm -hmm. based on the information that we received. But for me, this latest, you know, uh, removal of thesis felt like a further delay tactic. I really question, after the people that we spoke with, I really question how much they want this thing to really get off the ground and replace OATS, rather than just having OATS Plus, something that won't be taken in such granular detail. Yeah. In black and white here is the information. And for me I I kind of walked away and I said, you know, that, that that's what this felt like to me and so the SEC surely they got to realize this, right? That you know, we're we're not the the smart kids in the class. We're just talking to people and the SEC should be, you know, hopefully talking to the industry as well. And it surprised me if they don't have a feeling of this is a delay tactic here, but right now there's no plan. And again, that webinar yesterday was straight up useless in a lot it was of ways. Useless. I mean, yeah.
1: And this is the thing, like, let's play devil's advocate for the deep state conspiracy theory. here. Mm-hmm. You know, I always the, like the, deep state conspiracy. I do as well. Know, <laughs> look, it rings true to me as well. The SROs don't want this to happen yeah. for various reasons. Um, you got if you're in that position and you don't want cats to happen and you're in a position to stall it for, you've got to be thinking 2020 is on the horizon. Maybe a change in administration Clayton's come out like a battle axe on this. Maybe there's a new head of the SEC coming as a result. Mm-hmm. If we can just push it for a little bit further, then maybe we can do it. That kind of gets blown out of the water, I guess, by the fact that, you know, they're saying that these deadlines for reporting are still in place. You don't have to do it. Um, it's a question of whether it's, you know, full who are cap though, or whether they do what the SROs have done, like a limited reporting form. Yeah. Um, and, you know, with the webinar that happened on the 20th, they didn't announce a plan processor. Despite the fact that everyone was expecting to do that. And look, we all know that it's going to be Finra, right? Yeah. You know it, I know it, everyone else knows it's going to be it Finra. it kind of has
0: to be Finra.
1: There's no one, who else is going to do it. Like, you know, I mean, FIS withdrew their bid actually, and, and um, you know, they weren't interested in running it. And they were the one of the last three. So yeah. literally just Finra and Thesis are the only two capable people of doing it now. Yeah. Um, and, but anyway, the, the, the NMS committee said, oh, everyone has to agree on it, and, you know, we can't issue a statement. Fine, I understand that. Don't fire the plan processor and see if someone else queued up. This yeah. is, and this is, again, where the SEC should be stepping in and saying, what do you mean you fired thesis? Like, so you're going to hire a new plan processor. You haven't mm-hmm. said whether they're going to have to rebuild the technology to the, the technical specifications have already been um, yeah. agreed People upon. People are
0: already coding on this. People, People are already, are already have written so many documents and well, yeah, legal and, paperwork. And, 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 and vendors
1: are offering their like, point solutions and everything else to it. Why has the SEC allowed them to do this without having a replacement? They can immediately announce straight away, saying, "Listen, thesis wasn't out. working out with Finra Thesis. Is. Finra's in. Yeah. Um, they're going to be rebuilding it to the plan specifications. Because now all you're doing is you're doing exactly what you did to Thesis in the first place. Now you're bringing somebody in. You're prevaricating. You're saying you're probably not going to name someone until April. Um, at which point they have what? Same as Thesis. Like you know, <laughs> six or seven months to get yep. this in place before the large broker dealers start reporting yep. in November." I wonder if that gets kicked down, the, you know, the driver. bit. it's just infuriating to watch something like this happen and to watch um, a regulatory body like the SEC, who, you know, generally I think is a pretty good markets watchdog and they do a pretty good job of enforcement. Sure. But with this, they just don't seem to want to touch it. And it's really bizarre.
0: Yeah. And, you know, that was the other thing is the, the other galling thing. Um, and as so Amelia David, our uh, other reporter here in the U.S. with us, <laughs> Uh, she listened to the webinar and wrote up an article for today that I think just got published on Thursday here. Um, but galling that they don't answer questions, they're, that they're going to mm-hmm. sit on a mountaintop like they're handling this all well. So this goes mm-hmm. back to the cat and the mass plan. And they have no answers for anybody. This is just a train wreck. I mean, it's there's, there's nothing that inspires any confidence no. that this will get done. Now, granted, maybe... Maybe a year from now we're sitting back here and we're saying, you know what, they got it done, great job, well done, everybody pat yourselves on the back, way to come in and save the day, FINRA, whoever it is going to be. Um, or maybe it's just it, maybe they decide we'll create a consortium of the consortium of bidders, you know, yeah, and yeah, be like, exactly. you all, we'll just come together as a kumbaya. Why don't, why don't we just
1: all do it? I mean, like, the thing that amazes me as well is, you know, obviously the cat isn't yours and my beat, normally it's Mia's, but she was out on holiday when this all broke, yeah. so we had to coke Put this together pretty rapidly and get quite a lot of sources. Me is not allowed
0: to go to the Philippines again. Yeah, so. ever again, <laughs> uh, especially not twice in two months. Um,
1: so, but uh, you know, when I was, uh, I got excited about it because it's a great story. I think um, you know, and people the feedback we've received has been along those lines. And I was sort of telling people about it, like you know, say, like, oh, we've got this great story come out in the consolidated audit trail, and people said, what's that? And I said, well, it's you know, it's a way for people to track all the stock trades are made in the U.S. And everyone kind of looked at around and went, well, you mean they can't do that already. Like, mm. wait, what the hell, yeah. guys? I come on. It's like you know. And then very complicated conversation about market structure ensued and you know, I've got no friends now. But yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it it's it's it'll be interesting how it plays out, but right now there's no reason for any kind of confidence and the SECS know that. You know, the the Reg NMS plan, the members of that, the SROs, they all have to understand that yeah. they are not doing anything to improve the situation right now as far as a perception. And is this something Because that's the other thing, too, that, you know, we kind of came across a little bit of this was going to be a complicated undertaking for market participants to get behind no matter what, even if things ran smoothly. Well, now you have things like SFTR coming into effect in Europe. You have plenty of regulatory reporting uh, mandates that already exist. How long do firms have to freeze budget, Mm. you know, for this? When they cannot get their act together on it, you know, when they're gonna eventually you just kinda say, you know what? There's no action plan, there's no enforcement plan coming out of the SEC here. So why why are we why are we worrying well, about I this? I
1: mean, if I was the counsel for some of these firms, I'd be thinking, well, the SEC set a precedent here by not enforcing it, so if we don't meet that deadline, you yeah. can just tell them again. but you didn't sue the exchanges, did you? Yeah. From like they're out of compliance for two years and they yeah. saw, you know, a year and a half or long it's been. Um, you know, I don't know if that works in a legal. setting I'm not a lawyer, but I'd be certainly tempted to think that if I was in charge. This of podcast budgets, just so. reckless speculation. So that's all exactly good. yeah yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is it. and luckily, it's probably slander rather than yeah, libel exactly. as well. Yeah, so. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah, but I mean, like, it, it, no one comes out the smelling of roses. Um, I think, as you say, it's embarrassing. It needs to be sorted out. It's this shouldn't happen in a developed market economy like the United States, and it's just. Typical of the exigencies of of every actor, like you know, the industry's tendency to prevaricate and push rules back and rewrite them and toy with them, because they just hate being told what to do. Um, from the vendors, who you know, university claim they can do something and then they can't or they don't deliver on it, and not talking Yeah, you get
0: all you get all pieces of that pie, right? Yeah, yeah all pieces of pie, yeah. and then
1: the regulator is just sitting there going, ah, well, listen, I, I kind of want a job at the exchanges like five <laughs> this time, so I'm not going to you <laughs> i not saying that anybody did that, of course, but, you know, that's the perception that comes yeah. through from this, that the regulators are captive, yeah. um, and this certainly seems
0: to show that. And perception becomes reality, too, man. Like, if you don't get this solved, if this doesn't, like, this has been embarrassing how long this has taken, mm. you know, perception becomes reality. The, per, the perception becomes truth after a while, yeah. you know, and if you do nothing to change that, then you're to blame, you know, even, even if that perception is not correct. Yeah. You are to blame, and the fact that you don't talk to anybody publicly. We gave... Many, many chances to okay. for people to come and yeah. tell your story publicly, put your name. No, nope. no, nope. we don't want to do that. We are, because we know that this could still be screwed up a year from now. And we don't want to be oh, yeah. promising anything. I mean, you I know? was just
1: going back through um, the previous stories I've either reported or I've edited that Mia filed over the last few years and just the amount of just the SEC. Yeah, no yeah, no comment. No comment. No comment. Not interested. Yeah. Not even on background. Not even on deep background. Yeah. Um, you know, just not even just guidance on saying, are we right in saying. This? Yeah. Right in saying this? Just no. We don't ever want to be
0: wrong. We want yeah. to get as accurate as possible. And does so does everybody like? at the you know, Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg. Yeah. Everybody's chasing the story. Well,
1: yeah, and if Clayton's coming out in the middle of the Senate and just throwing his weight around about the cat and that kind of thing, and they're making a big splash and issuing press releases about hiring a cat czar, let us talk to the yeah. catzar. czar. I mean, come on, you know. It's, yeah. uh, I mean, there's a lack and dearth of information and a secrecy around this, which is distasteful, yep.
0: which is the thing. But, yeah. So, again, uh, Mia's got a story that went up uh, on Thursday. Did uh, Is this still the headline? No. Uh, okay. Um, What's the headline? Just We'll I, link to it. But.
1: I, well, we published it before we came in the stream, but I can't remember. Yeah,
0: okay. <laughs> um, well, we'll link to it in uh, the story. And then um, our very, very deep dive into the whole history and everything that went wrong along the way. It's called uh, Cat's Tale, How Thesis the SROs and the SEC Mishandled. The consolidated audit trail. Uh, we hope you read it. If you know, this is one of those stories that if you don't have a subscription, take out a trial. You know, it's yeah. we don't require a credit card for that. This is one that I think you will want to read. Just yeah. this is the definitive piece. You won't be able to find this on Wall Street Journal. You won't be able to find this on Risk. You won't be able to find this on Bloomberg. No, you know, yeah. this is this is yeah. our baby right here.
1: Exactly. And, and actually, if you work for um, Morgan Stanley, for Refinitiv, uh, for City and HSBC, I think um, we're running company-wide trials. So. Um, just hit us up and we'll send you the link to your company page where you can do that. Yeah. you don't even have to
0: sign up. Yeah, you can yeah. just get that. I think it's thirty trial. day trial or something. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, so that's that. Uh, next up, we have Martin Boyd from FIS, and he will sit down and talk with James about a number of uh, different topics affecting uh, the fintech and capital market space. So we hope you enjoy that. Next week we'll be back. Uh, Gil Mendelis, uh, he's the co-founder of Capitolis. Uh, formerly uh, EBS Broker Tech and uh, founder, co- uh, was the founder of Triana back in the day. He comes on, a lot of interesting kind of tales that he has just about what it was like to start a, a, a startup, you know, 2000 versus yeah. today, um, and co- some a look at the wider FX market as well. So, yeah, it's uh, a really great
1: chat, actually. It's interesting. Yeah, it's really and then the stuff. week after that, we'll be reporting from Boca, I guess. So, Is yeah. it
0: the week after that? Yeah, I so, yeah, yeah the week yeah. after that. Uh, yeah. Well,
1: at some point too
0: yeah, yeah I think so yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, I don't have a calendar for me anyway way to throw us off track there James um, <laughs> <laughs> alright uh, next up Martin Boyd speaks with James Rundle and we will see you next week with Gil Mandelsis I'm now joined by Martin Boyd Global Head of
1: Institutional and Wholesale at FIS in our New York newsroom Martin thank you very much for being here today Hello, Jim. Good to see you as well. And you. Um, Martin, we're going to have a good chat today. It's going to be about fintech. It's going to be about capital markets technology. It's going to be about cost and all that lovely stuff that people love to talk about. Um, I think to kick off with, really, um, so I'm interested in this from your perspective. FIS has been around for a long time, like nearly half a century now, I think, right? Yeah, Those exactly. Kind of...
2: Fifty years last year was our 50-year uh, anniversary, so wow. yes.
1: Yeah, it's, I mean, that's a hell of a long time to be in fintech. It's uh, Over the last few years, I think, you know, from our perspective at Waters, we've been around for 25 years covering fintech before fintech was cool, I guess. Um, and it's really taken on a life of its own since 2013, 2014, I guess, uh, you know, when you started really hearing about these new startup firms coming in. Um, you know, KPMG's Pulse of Fintech report said that global fintech funding reached $111.8 billion in 2018, I think. Mm. Um but this was obviously driven by a number of mega deals, including the Blackstone-Thompson Reuters deal, which was a like 17 billion, a few other payment ones as well. And from your perspective, you've been watching the sector for a while. Do you feel as if uh, fintech has peaked or is there still a little bit of a way for it to go as a kind of a cottage industry, I guess?
2: Yeah, and, and I think you know that one of the problems with the label fintech um, mm. is uh, that it encompasses you know, such a breadth of capability. I mean, it, it is a massive industry yeah. as a whole. And it's, it's sometimes very difficult when you put a label on something like that, you, you automatically associate it with a particular part of the business. And that part of the business could be um, you know the last mile to a consumer retail customer um, that's out there, or it could be something more fundamental in terms of the infrastructure uh, of the industry and how it processes more efficiently. Mm. And so um, when we think of FinTech, um, we don't see it anywhere near peaking. And we don't see it anywhere near peaking because the challenges that the uh, the market has to solve seem to be ever-increasing. And although uh, some of the fintech uh, newer business activities seem to aim to simplify that, in reality, behind the scenes, the infrastructure of execution still has to be robust, mm-hmm. still has to be... Um, you know, provided to a scale and a complexity that allows it to operate cross markets. Uh, And so when FIS thinks of um, fintech, we look at it in a couple of ways. First of all, we're looking at it as an enabler for the next generation of could be payment technology, could be mobile banking technology, or it could be in the context of uh, the wholesale markets greater transparency of data, the ability to drive regulation efficiency. Or equally, you know, it could be um, the, uh, the underlying engine rooms of our major banking and financial customers today, um, on both the buy and the sell side, to enable them to drive processing efficiency within their organizations and to give their customers a better experience. Mm-hmm. So we don't think fintech has peaked for that reason. I think there probably are certain parts of financial technology around the mobile space around the payment space that are well served uh, from an industry standpoint. And they tend to get the headlines, I think, in terms of what we see uh, across the financial technology market. I think what we see as an enabler is the ability to really move what has traditionally been quite large, monolithic, core solutions, be it banking, um, you know, wholesale solutions, and enable customers and the rest of the market through API technology mm-hmm. to be able to access those in a much more agile and more efficient way. Yeah. And so where we're seeing our growth is in that space as an enabler for those um, both uh, second tier companies and also major institutions to bring new technology to market quicker.
1: Is that in terms of being able to plug into to
2: your technology and then go from there? Or Correct, yes. And for, So, you know, twofold. First of all, it's for them to be able to plug into our technology much more efficiently. And secondly, for us to be able to link together that technology in an end-to-end value chain. Um, when we talk a little bit about the institutional space a little bit later on, it's been very fragmented historically. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the opportunities for the market for our customers and clients, and for us ourselves, is to bring those together in a more seamless way. And yeah. API is one of the technologies that's going to help us do that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a really key point, right? When you talk about breaking down fintech, I guess because on the, you know, you have the traditional disruption story, I guess on the on yeah. the uh, the payment side of it, at least, you know, you see adverts for transfer wise in the tube and on the subway, blaming banks for their fees or whatever. On the capital market side, it's a much more kind of um, I guess kind of uh more of a partnership angle to it, I guess, more than anything else. Yes. Um however, I think you're right in the fragmentation side as well. Like you see targeted solutions around alternative data or you see things around like bond trading platforms or electronically, but you don't really see much in the way of integrated solutions the same way that FAS provides, I guess. So yeah. maybe we did maybe can we dig down a bit more into how you kind of bring the FIS approach to that and kind of bring that marketplace together? So
2: Yes. Um you know, Jim, it's it's interesting when we look at a particular problem that a certain tier of the market has to solve. Mm-hmm. And it's not, uh, you know, for a tier one brokerage firm or a tier two or three brokerage firm, whilst the, the broad problems are the same that they've got to manage, scale and then the complexity that dealing with that scale uh, really creates means that, that each customer segment has a slightly different problem and value proposition that we need to be able to present to them. And so if you look at the very large firms, it is around providing uh, technology components that are scalable and that can plug in quite quickly, Mm -hmm. and then providing additional components which we pre-integrate alongside those to enable uh, customers to retire legacy technology or to consolidate um, platforms. And when you think about uh, the cost impact of regulation and the way in which capital has been restricted on the wholesale side, it's imperative that they look to integrate to drive out costs to get that efficiency of processing. As you go further into the next tier of the market, what they're looking for is an enabler which enables them to compete with the tier ones but at a scale which is much smaller. Mm -hmm. So what they're looking for is this end-to-end solution suite where it's pre-packaged, pre-integrated, it's provided on a managed services basis, which really enables them to bring products to market and and take products out of commission very much more quickly than they would have been able to do historically by buying each of the individual components. Mm -hmm. And so that's really where we see uh, the value proposition at the different levels and dip tiers in the market. So on the one hand, you've got to provide agility and the ability to consume in component form at the at the top end. And then as you go further down the market, you've got to provide that end-to-end solution suite. And so we're seeing really good business activity in both of those uh, parts of the market. And if you look at the investment dollars that we're spending, a lot of it isn't, isn't in growing IP depth. It's in packaging it and then presenting it with um, you know, digital front-end. And when I say digital in the wholesale space, it's it's technology which really enables them to drive into the data okay. and make sense of it. In terms of user interface and... and the user mechanism. interface and, um, you know, although it's not big data, mm-hmm. it is massive amounts of data. And we were talking before um, beforehand about CAT and what that introduces. Mm-hmm. CAT introduces a massive amount of data now mm-hmm. which... Uh, is both um, a challenge for an, an organization to be able to provide, but also a fantastic opportunity because once you 've consolidated that data within your institution you suddenly got a platform that's going to enable regulatory reporting yeah. it 's going to enable all sorts of um, activity around understanding your customer in a way that you didn 't have granularity before yeah. so I think um, when we uh, go down that digitization route, it's about getting that data right and then providing, as you said, the tools on top of it, the, yeah. the, the GUI, the uh, the business intelligence tools to really then drill down another level.
1: Yeah. And the analytics and, and the ability to data viz and everything else. Exactly. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's probably a good thing, um, a good segue for us to talk, I guess, more closely about capital markets and sort of the wholesale side of things. So. Where do you still see opportunities for fintech to make an impact? Is it on that tooling side of it, or are there sort of specific gaps that you can see right now in sort of infrastructure or in terms of um, more technology?
2: So I, I think uh, it's it's the rebuilding of the infrastructure and mm-hmm. making it uh, fit for purpose for um, the current capital structure and the the um, fee structure that those institutions can now charge their clients, and yeah. and so making it fit for purpose is a combination of taking away uh, some of the unique bits of uh, IP and technology that they used to be able to do, uh, you know, where they used to be able to justify for an individual desk, for example, yeah. a specific bit of technology. Far more these days, they're looking at cross asset based platforms, which enable them from a single platform to both. Uh, provide the capability that their clients need, but at the same time, not escalate the cost of operating that infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So that cross-asset capability is key. The other is processing efficiency. Mm -hmm. And we're starting to see some interesting use of machine learning Mm -hmm. uh, components. So when you think about breaks between platforms and between participants in the market, um, we, for some time, have had a reconciliation technology which really enables them to you know, reconcile positions, transactions and trades between participants. But now what we're doing is introduce machine learning into that process so that rather than um, them always having to manage a break manually, they're starting to see two things. They're starting to see, well, what did a human operator do to correct that break historically, yeah. and it will give you an increasing confidence level through the learning process mm-hmm. of it being able to fix it for oh, you. That's the solution to that problem. Exactly, exactly. And uh, But if you like, it, only, it learns over time. It, mm. So day one, it'll have a 90% certainty. But day 20, it'll have something like a 99% certainty, which is probably very similar to a human interacting with it. Yeah. So you're seeing some interesting technology application there. But I think the more exciting element of it is it'll also start to see inefficiencies in the data. Mm -hmm. So it'll start to see the reason for the break, not just the resolution of the break. And so once you see the reason for the break, you can really then uh, start to uh, go back and say, okay, so it's a core data source problem, and a process inefficiency in that. Uh-huh. Uh, so we're we we're, we're excited about that because we I don't think we've seen the full realization of that yet. Yeah. But you'll start to see that drive uh, through the value chain.
1: That's interesting. I mean, I heard a of thing last summer. I was talking to the European Space Agency of all people, and uh, you know they have fantastic machine learning capabilities to govern their deep space satellites and yes. see what goes wrong and everything else. And um, they were saying they were looking at sort of applying that to financial markets or infrastructure problems, so they can deploy that algorithm in and. If something breaks, they can sort of analyze it and feel... So it's an interesting application of AI, I guess, as the... uh, It is.
2: And and you can see a similar thing. So there's a lot of expense, um, you know, for our customers around market surveillance technologies. And... You know, clearly things like machine learning and plugging in artificial intelligence engines. So we, d- we don't have an artificial intelligence engine, but our job is to plug into mm-hmm. the base uh, availability that's in the market. And those engines change over time. So the interesting element there is, yes, we'll provide the machine learning component, but then you want to be able to plug into specific areas of expertise or data sources, which really enable that customer then to complete uh, a processing operation. Yeah. So, you, if you can imagine, you're putting uh, the the platform in to provide the workflow from end to end to cover the asset classes, but then giving it the hooks at various appropriate points to get into the other technologies.
1: Yeah, I mean, speaking of surveillance, so that will be what, like prioritization of alerts for surveillance officers and that kind of thing? Exactly, and then it'll
2: be um, more, it'll be looking at uh, not just formatted data, which is, you know, the way a lot of surveillance works at the moment, looking Mm at uh, trading patterns, activity, but it'll extend beyond that into, well, let's now look at textual data that's Mm -hmm. coming through, you know, either the World Wide Web or elsewhere that you can actually then uh, start to uh, bring into the picture to say, actually, there's a trend emerging here of trading against information that's appearing in the market. And actually, if it's predating the information that's coming out in the market, yeah. you um, then raises alarm bells. Fraud questions. And then exactly. Trading, uh, exactly. And so very interesting uh, part of the business. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you
1: know, Every firm we talk to now is fully engaged with kind of, if not actually developing AI and machine learning and its various subsets, but actually, look what can it do for the business right now. Absolutely. But I think um, you know, in terms of, sort of traditional technology, um, you know, you and I were speaking about this before the podcast, but we've had a period of, I guess, the whole post-crisis period, really of reacting to regulations coming through. Whether it's Dodd Frank, whether it's Mifid, Mifir, yes, market abuse regulation, all that good stuff, um, and a lot of the technology spend has kind of been focused around either patch jobs to comply with that or putting proper platforms in place or whatever. Um, But looking ahead now as we're moving from regulatory reform into implementation, now that bedding in, I think a lot of the focus from people I talk to is around kind of cost management now and what do we do with our technology estate and how do we sort of rationalise it, how do we future-proof it, how do we start building for the next few years as well. Um, I mean, where do you see, I guess, the pressure being applied in terms of trading for technology at present or more broadly in the buy and sell sides, where are people looking to sort of change what they're doing? So,
2: so. Yeah, I think it's um, the, the challenge of regulation isn't really behind yeah. um, a lot of these organisations, but I think you're right. What was put in uh, to service that regulation was very much either a point solution or a tactical solution mm-hmm. aimed at getting compliance underway, but then requiring Um, a range of both advisors and other people within the organization around it to really help them uh, drive the execution of that. And so I think uh, the next phase is to introduce regulatory platforms built around a data set that is common, because in many examples of Uh, regulation, the same data is actually being used for multiple purposes and yet sits in multiple islands Mm -hmm. across the organization. So the first thing I think is having a data management strategy, which really enables them to then leverage uh, the data from end to end and then slowly retire some of those tactical solutions that they built, you know, to create something more homogeneous. And I see um, a lot of effort and energy going into that. Um, I think if you, though, pivot to the buy side market, so we've seen um, a number of key trends in uh, that market, which are common knowledge you know, to, across the industry. But, you know, in traditional management, the move away from actively managed to passive has been a huge trend and yeah. continues. And, and that's a, a combination of uh, cost for performance um, and being able to demonstrate that uh, very easily in a, a passive-based fund. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, some of the technology we've introduced there, which is again really exciting, is the ability to um, balance and manage uh, portfolios and track to an index without the need for um, additional portfolio management skills to do that. Mm. And that's all about having models around market movements, the factors that move markets, interesting, yeah. and then being able to select a limited number of assets in the index that can act um, that can appropriately um, mirror or track the mm. market. And so the excitement is that if you've got, say, a 1,000 participants in an index or a 1,000 stocks, that you can actually manage that same index and the tracking to it better by picking a 100 stocks which represent that market and then substituting them in and out over time.
1: So it's almost actively managed passive. Not, you Absolutely. I mean, and
2: what it does, though, is cut down your transaction volume because sure. if you've got funds coming in and out... Um, you know, you're you're having to buy and sell a much fewer number of stocks and equities, you know, to maintain the position and the yeah. tracking. The so, of the yeah. So there's a lot of, and then the other trend is, whilst um, the larger hedge funds still are attracting assets and still continuing to grow, the mm-hmm. startups in the hedge fund market has reduced significantly uh, over the last few years, but the startups for private funds in private equity, real estate and the different asset classes that make those up has increased substantially. Right. So there's a huge asset flow. Uh, So overall, alternative assets continue to grow year on year. Hedge fund over the next few years is going to remain relatively static or slightly increase. Private equity, as it's done in the last few years, is going to continue growing significantly. And one of the main reasons for that is that um, as a vehicle for managing longer term investments, so things like... um, a, a commodity, so things like a, a, a mine where you've got to invest heavily for years before you start seeing cash flow out. Mm-hmm. Large scale property development, similar. Um, leverage buyouts will continue to be um, interesting. But that whole asset class um, and the complexity that goes with that, because it's not, uh, it was never built for uh, volume and scale mm. as a market, it's not an efficient market. Uh, and so for a given uh, pension fund that might invest in twenty five or thirty different um, private equity funds for them to actually manage that as an investment is a huge cost sure yeah. much more much more costly than managing uh, fixed income positions or equity positions mm. so a lot of dynamic there that we 're spending a lot of time in terms of trying to drive efficiency in that part of the market
1: yeah so that's, i mean I think it seems to me from our conversations leaving i mean maybe not the buy side side of it, but uh very least the sell side part of it and the startup part of it. That the key kind of thing underpinning a lot of this is having some sort of cloud enablement, right, in terms of, yes. or at least a managed services component, yes. uh, whether you deliver that directly or through a sort of cloud process. Is that something you, you agree yeah. with being the foundation technology? Yeah, so this
2: it's, it's um, you know, traditionally, um, you know, FIS has had uh, an infrastructure that enables us to. Um, be able to manage a client's application, usually our own, yep. on their behalf within our uh, operating data centers. And we do leverage public cloud technology, say, for development environments and things like that. Mm-hmm. But for the larger customers, again, looking back over the last few years, they have wanted to know that from a security standpoint, and particularly when you look at um, you know, the the retail and payment space, which yep. has been a, a significant driver for growth in that area where they really want to know that your their data and their client data, their customer data, is protected from end-to-end. Yeah. And by, uh, in, by doing business where you're working with a vendor that has the infrastructure, you can kind of manage that process much more significantly and more uh, reliably in the context of a contract with them. Now, the challenge is, as you know, uh, public cloud is becoming more prevalent aco- across the industry, and many large institutions are saying they're actually comfortable with public cloud. Yeah. Um, what that means though, probably in terms of deployment for us, is this hybrid model, mm-hmm. where we've got a combination that we manage, which is the higher risk data, where we've got it end-to-end, and then we extend the managed services out to those elements that um, you know, really help them uh, flex their computing muscle mm-hmm. and give them that flexibility. Uh, so we've got some good examples of that. Our, um, our profit enterprise platform is a uh, an actuarial modelling tool for the insurance industry. Yeah. And that has um, huge burst computing requirements. Yeah. Every month, it's massive calculations it's got to perform. So we le- leverage uh, AWS and Azure, mm-hmm. and it depends on the customer's preference which way they want to go. But we provide the managed services across that to provide that burst computing capability. So
1: when it needs to run its Monte or its counterparty risk calculations, whatever, it can just... Yeah, here's a thousand well, calls. So, yeah. Let's a
2: thousand calls. We need it across the weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, job done. And, and from an economic standpoint, that's hugely valuable. For sure. Them. Yeah. Uh, but from an overall uh, business standpoint, they know that um, you know FIS has a responsibility for this end-to-end picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's it's going to be interesting, uh, and to see that evolution and see how far um, our customers want to push it. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, that's for us to travel with them on that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it does seem like attitudes are changing, right? I mean, it I remember does. covering this back in 2010, and it wasn't even, it was a dirty word, right, cloud? And, Absolutely, and Now yeah. it's uh, now everyone's like, oh, yeah, we're using Amazon, we're using actually, we're using Amazon, we're using Azure, and we're using Google Cloud, so, you know, there we go. Um, so, just finally, while I have you, Martin, um, you know, looking ahead, what do you see as some of the areas that uh, tech personnel at banks, Asset managers, hedge funds, brokers should be focused on for the rest of the year going into 2020. What are the key areas?
2: I, I think um, we touched on a little bit earlier on mm-hmm. the whole question of data management yeah. and how they uh, service uh, stakeholders uh, from that strategy. And so I don't think... Um, it's a single data management strategy. So in other words, it's very difficult to conceive of a single data warehouse, for example, that both has the performance to service a trading book mm-hmm. um, and at the same time be uh, the sort of application you want to delve into for, and do major you know, queries on and things like that. So a lot of the, what I think about data management is what's the appropriate array of data and how do you populate that data on a timely fashion for a given use case and so I think that's going to occupy um, the industry going forward and it's going to have a regulatory angle, it's going to have an efficiency angle to it and it's going to have a customer service or client angle in terms of how they and what they need to provide to their customers. So Mm -hmm. that's um, I think a major trend that we're going to see. Second will be how can we leverage uh, machine learning in particular to drive efficiency across the process. And sure. it could be, as I said, at the portfolio management end of the market, or it could be at the um, uh, at the efficiency of processing on securities, for example. Yep. And then maybe the final area would be, uh, how do you drive out some of the inefficiencies in the market? And will we see uh, solutions that are going to either block blockchain based or otherwise, they're going to start to uh, create um, a more efficient interaction between market participants. Mm. So far, we haven't seen the reality of that emerging. There's a few interesting activities that are out there that may uh, emerge fully, and we're watching those closely. Um, But areas that we can see on the buy side, we're trying to provide both the investor and the the institutional investor and the institutional manager Mm -hmm. the connectivity between them that gives that data transparency where an institutional manager uses a lot of detail around risks, exposures, as well as performance. Mm-hmm. And the asset manager needs to be able to be one of the providers of that data you know, in the multiple to that end of the market.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, well, great stuff. and uh, Martin, great discussion. Thank you very much for coming in. And uh, hopefully i right. have you back on podcast at some
2: point soon. Yeah, yeah. thanks very much, Jim. Thanks.